My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilden Hills Church. It's really good to see all of you. You look marvelous. Let me tell you, you look marvelous. It's good to get together with, with God's people, worship together, and just uh, crack open the word. That's what we do here. Nothing too fancy. Uh, just worship and teach. Let's crack open the word. We are in Luke 16. We're studying the book of Luke. Uh, and uh, this morning, I'm going to finish up a message that I sort of began last week as we're looking at this parable about this rich guy who didn't care about the poor and ended up in flames in Hades. Uh, rather ominous parable. Um, and last week, I just used it as an occasion to give some biblical teaching about hell. And if you weren't here for that, I encourage you to download that message. Uh, that wasn't the main point of this parable. This morning, I'm going to get at that main point, and it has to do with acting on the truth. I'm entitling this Acting on the Truth, and I hope that the reasons for that will become clear here shortly. So we're in Luke 16, and we're starting with verse 19. It says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate, which means he lived in a mansion, this guy really it was, was well off, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So the rich guy is at the top of the social uh, strata. The La- Lazarus is at the very, very, very bottom. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, just using, as I said last week, uh, just very traditional Jewish imagery to denote heaven. The rich man also eventually died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. The rich man showed no pity in his lifetime, and so now receives no pity. Uh, It's an illustration of the biblical principle, you reap what you sow. This is the only time in a parable where a character is actually given a name. His name is Lazarus. And some even have thought maybe this isn't a parable because here we have a guy who was named. But the reason he's given a name is because the, the word, the name Lazarus means God helps or God comforts. And it denotes that even though this man throughout his life was, was, was in the worst possible situation, uh, in the end, he's the one who's comforted. Another reason that this character is given a name might be that some have, have supposed that um, What's being communicated is that Lazarus, he was one of the invisible people uh, in his lifetime. Uh, the kind of guy that very few people would know his name. And by giving him a personal name, it gives it a personal touch, and it's a way of, of communicating that God knew him throughout his life. Whereas the rich guy, who everyone in the region at least would know, his name was well known, he's not given a name in this parable, so it draws out that contrast. And then Abraham continues in his dialogue to the rich man who is now in Hades. He says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. 
Now, as I mentioned last week, this is a parable, and in a parable, you know, you got to look at the main point that's being taught and re- realize that everything else is a, is a prop to that main point. So, for example, when we read the parable of the dishonest manager, uh, it would be a mistake to draw principles of management uh, from that parable because the guy was dishonest. But rather, the point had to do with forethought and, 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 and you know, looking ahead. So also here, uh, the dialogue between Abraham and, 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 and this, this man who is in Hades is meant to be a, a way of teaching the main point. But the main point isn't about the nature of heaven and hell. And the reason that's important is because if this was literal, it seems to me that the people in Hades wouldn't be the only miserable people. It would be the people in heaven as well. If you're looking at loved ones who are now in flames and they're begging for mercy and asking for pity and you want to go help them but you can't, well, that'd be a pretty nightmare situation. But it's not to be taken literally. Uh, we're dealing with a parable here. That the tormented man, he sees that there's no hope for getting any relief. So now he changes his request. Listen to this. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But see, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They'll turn. They'll change their way of living. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Pray with me here for a moment. I, I, I'm just going to say ahead of time, this is one of those messages which as it evolved throughout the week, it got heavier on me. I want you to remember that I'm just the messenger. Don't hate me for bringing this message, but it's a very important and yet fairly confrontational message. Are you ready to receive it? We don't come here to get our ears tickled, right? We, we come here to do business. Uh, and, and so this is uh, one of the kind that we need to pray that God will keep us really being honest with ourselves and open to receive his word. So pray with me here. Father, uh, we don't trust in any kind of human words, any kind of speeches or anything of the sort to do what needs to be done. Uh, we trust in you and your spirit using words to impact our life, our heart, our minds, uh, to build your kingdom. And so, God, we pray for everybody in this auditorium and all the parishioners who are listening and all who are maybe viewing it through television or some other means, that, that at the moment they hear this, you'd be softening their hearts, softening our hearts, and lowering our defenses, and creating a fertile soil that is willing to make radical adjustments if necessary. And a heart that is naked before you and open to being convicted where conviction is necessary. Teach us, guide us, and transform us. Allow us, empower us to hear this word authentically. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So in a parable, the central point that's intended to be taught is the only point you're supposed to really grab onto. Everything else is a prop. So what is the central point of this passage? As with many parables, it's found in the punchline, which is the last verse, which reads like this. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The teaching I take out of that has to do with the urgency of acting on the truth that you know. The urgency of acting on the truth that you know. So here's the thing. This guy is now being tormented in these flames, and he wants Lazarus to go back and warn his five brothers. His five brothers apparently have been as greedy and as apathetic towards the poor as he has been. That's why he's worried about them. 
And he wants to go back and warn them. So he says, if someone from the dead goes back and talks to them, surely they'll repent. Now you need to know that stories about people coming back from the dead in the form of apparitions or ghosts and then passing on kind of moral lessons were fairly common in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, there's, there's like a, a genre of, of ethical teaching that follows this format, a little bit like uh, Dickens' Christmas Carol, where Jacob Marley comes back from the dead as a ghost and, and warns Scrooge to change his ways, otherwise he's going to meet this dire fate. And so it, it, was, a, it was a way of, of, of uh, you know, p- passing on moral truths. And the fact that, that this, is, this idea is incorporated in the, go- in the Gospels here shows you that, once again, you're dealing with a non-literal genre. You're dealing with a parable. But the brother assumes that if his brother, the, the rich guy, assumes that if his brothers are warned by an apparition or a ghost, then they'll change their ways. And that seems like a fairly reasonable request, I would think. Uh, wouldn't you be affected if a very realistic ghost or apparition appeared to you? If I got up tomorrow morning and walk into the bathroom and I see my father there, and I'm very sure that I'm awake, I pinch myself, I'm very sure that I'm not hallucinating or anything, and he says, Greg, you have got to change some things about your life, otherwise you're going to be heading towards a very dire, dire fate. Uh, he'd have my attention. I think that would, I think that would impact my life. <laughs> what is it? I'll change it now. And the thing is, is that supernatural manifestations, um, apparitions, they, they, they sometimes, those sorts of weird things, sometimes really make lifelong changes in people. I have a friend who, to this day, insists that Jesus spoke to him on an LSD trip. Uh, he, was, uh, he was tripping, and uh, a poster of a rock band all of a sudden transformed into Jesus, and Jesus said, you've got to get your life right or you're going to hell. And the guy repented, and to this day he insists that that was the real Jesus talking to him, that was not the drugs talking. I don't know what was talking, but I do know that it had a major impact in his life. This is 35 years ago. So sometimes these funky manifestations can have a lifelong impact. Why does Abraham here say it would do no good? Abraham denies that it wouldn't have any sort of impact at all. He says, let them uh, listen to Moses and the prophets. They have Moses and the prophets. The truth is is that there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of verses in Moses and the prophets that address uh, the need for the wealthy to care for the poor and warnings about greed and hoarding more than you need when there are people in the world who have less than they need. And Abraham says that that that's enough for them. These verses are enough for them. And that if uh, someone were to come back from the dead, it it wouldn't convince them. In fact, even if someone were to rise from the dead, And most scholars believe that he's referring to his future resurrection here, which is more than just a ghost or an apparition. This is when the tomb is empty. You have a transformed body. Uh, Even that wouldn't convince these folks. And I'm wondering why. You would think it would convince these folks. What also puzzles me is that in the Bible, sometimes the appearances do convince folks. Like when Jesus appeared to people, for some people, it had a major transformation. Paul, he has this encounter with the living Lord, and it changes his life. The doubting Thomas encounters the resurrected Lord, and it changes his life. James, the brother of Jesus, didn't believe uh, in Jesus during his, his lifetime, but after the resurrection, he becomes a convert. And so it is with all the disciples. It may have had a major impact. Why would Abraham here say that it wouldn't make any difference whatsoever? Well, the answer, I think, is maybe found here. Realize that the resurrection, 
while it impacted some people's lives tremendously, there are other people who weren't affected at all by it. If you look at Matthew 28, Jesus appeared in, in his resurrected form uh, on this mountaintop, and it said, and there's a large crowd there, and it said, you know, some believed, but some doubted. And the Pharisees, they knew the tomb was empty, and yet, rather than letting that impact them and make them at least entertain the possibility that Jesus was who he really said he was, rather than that, they, they fabricated a story to cover it up. Well, we'll just say that the disciples stole the body. But they knew that wasn't true. So while the resurrection impacted some people, it didn't impact other people. Why? And the answer, I think, has to do with the condition of a person's heart. The conditions of a person's heart. If a person has an open heart, open to truth and open to God, then, then supernatural manifestations and then rational arguments will help convince their mind of the truth if their heart is open. But if their heart is not open, if their heart is shut, then all the supernatural manifestations in the world and all the best rational arguments in the world probably won't do any good. Now remember that this parable is being directed towards the Pharisees. He tells this parable after Luke mentions that the Pharisees were snubbing, raising their nose to, towards him. They're sneering at him. And so the reason Jesus has Abraham say to the rich guy who is in Hades that sending Lazarus to warn his brothers wouldn't do any good is because the brothers, like the Pharisees, had a hard heart. The, the Pharisees, they not only knew Moses and the prophets, but they were the experts, the teachers on Moses and the prophets. And so the Pharisees should have been the first ones to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah, especially in light of all the miracles that he did, and especially in light of the resurrection. But they denied that. They refused to believe in him despite the miracles and despite the resurrection. And the Pharisees... The experts and the, the Moses and the prophets, they should have been the first ones to act on the teaching about the responsibility of the wealthy to minister to the poor. They knew those verses. They taught those verses. And yet they didn't. And yet they didn't. What this parable is, is suggesting is that these five brothers, like the Pharisees, they knew all they needed to know about the poor, and in the case of the Pharisees, about Jesus, in order to get their lives to line up with God's will. They knew all they needed to know. They just didn't want to. And Jesus is saying that for people like this, whose hearts are hard, getting more information won't help, even if it, that information is delivered by a person who is coming back from the dead. Because for people like this, the problem isn't a lack of information. For people like this, the problem is more profound than that. The problem is in their heart. And it reveals this very important truth. A person can know a truth, but convince themselves they don't know it when they don't like the implication the truth has for their life. A person can know a truth, but convince themselves they don't know it when they don't like the implication the truth has for their life. This presents a warning to both non-believers and to believers. To non-believers, here's the warning. 
Some listening here, maybe in the auditorium or through podcasting or through television, you have never surrendered your life to Jesus, or at least you're not surrendered now. And the reason is because you're not convinced that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you're not convinced he rose from the dead, and things of that sort. And it may be that the reason you're not convinced is just because your mind hasn't given you permission to believe. It could be that you have an open heart to God, you really long for the truth, but your mind just ha- isn't there yet. You, you just haven't been convinced. And if you're in that situation, I bless you. I encourage you to come to the letters class and ask your questions and, and stay objective and investigate the matter. Uh, keep on searching it out because I'm convinced that if your heart is really open to truth and open to God, your mind will, will, will eventually give you sufficient reason to convince you to submit your life to Jesus Christ. But it could also be that there are some here who are not submitted to Jesus and some listening through podcasts or other means. And your issue really isn't your head at all. Your issue is your heart. And no one can judge you because we don't know your heart. But it may be the case that God knows that you have more than enough information, more than enough knowledge to act on. You just don't want to. Because you like being Lord of your own life. And what this parable is saying to you, if you'll hear this, is that you are in a very dangerous position. If you don't act on what you know, you may find yourself losing the capacity to act on what you know. If you don't respond to the light that you have, you may find over time that you begin to lose that light. You may come to the point where you wouldn't be convinced that Jesus is Lord even if he himself appeared to you. And I don't say that as any kind of a scare tactic. I say it just as a general observation about human nature. We get good at whatever we do. If you respond to the light that you have, you'll find that that you're given more light. You get good at responding to light. And things get clearer and clearer. But if you resist the light that you have, and you don't act on what you know, maybe convincing yourself that you don't really know it, well, you get good at that. And you may find that you gradually lose your capacity to act on what you know. The clarity you have today isn't guaranteed you tomorrow. Which is why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you you see the light, if there's a pull towards the light, I encourage you to act on that. Because if you resist the light that you genuinely have, well, you eventually get good at that. Life is never stationary, never Life is always in motion. It is a river. It's not a pond. And that river is always going in a direction. And you set the direction of that river by the decisions of your heart. Respond to light, you get more light. Refuse the light, you gradually grow blind. But the principle that if you refuse to act on what you know, you may lose your capacity to act on what you know, doesn't just apply to non-believers. It applies to all of us. Now, to see this, I I want us to look at, investigate, or ask the question, how could it happen that these brothers could have gotten to the point where their hearts were so hard that even having Lazarus appear as an apparition or having Jesus rise from the dead wouldn't convince them? How does a person get in that situation? This parable assumes that all these brothers are Jewish. That's why the rich man calls Abraham father and Abraham calls him son. They're Jewish. And as good Jewish people in the first century, they would know the law and the prophets. Uh, they, would, they would know all the passages about greed and all the passages about our responsibility to care for the poor. They heard those over and over again. And yet the situation they're in in this parable is 
They never act on that. That's why they're in danger, and that's why the rich man is already in Hades. Uh, Imagine the life of this rich man. As a Jew in the first century, he would go to the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue every Sabbath. To get to the synagogue, he'd have to walk out of his mansion and walk out of those gates, which means he'd have to walk, walk past the emaciated Lazarus there, maybe even have to step over him once in a while. And then he goes to the synagogue. And at the synagogue, he and his wealthy brothers here, the Bible taught all the time the law and the prophets. And and they they would read the law and the prophets and they'd have a lesson and they'd discuss it. That's what they did in synagogues. That would include all the passages that that warn us about the dangers of greed and that call on us to take responsibility for the poor. And so I imagine this, this rich guy at one point going out of his mansion, walking past Lazarus, going to the synagogue, and sitting down and hearing a lesson taught and a discussion led on Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, among other things, says this. The Lord says, On the day of your fasting, one day a week they'd abstain from food, He says, On the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Do you think I'm impressed with your fasting when you do that? Then the Lord says, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? And when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And if this rich man didn't know it before, he knows it now, that Yahweh commands him to live justly. Yahweh commands him and his brothers to break every bondage, uh, to feed the hungry, to give shelter to the homeless. And Yahweh commands him and his brothers to clothe the naked. And see, if this rich guy would have been willing to obey this, the meaning of the text would have been perfectly clear. Among other things, he would know that he has some responsibility to care for Lazarus, to share of his resources with Lazarus. And as he did that, he would gradually grow and learn the joy of sacrificial giving which is far, 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 far greater than any momentary happiness you get from hoarding your own resources while neglecting the poor. And if this rich guy would have done this, he eventually would have ended up with Lazarus by Abraham's side in heaven rather than in the flames. But obviously, this rich guy didn't want to do this. He didn't want to do this. He likes his stuff. He likes his life. He likes his privilege. He likes his comfort. He likes his convenience. He's enjoying himself. He doesn't want to be troubled by taking on the poor. When you get involved with the poor, your life will be, well, it can get messy a little bit and and, and, and it can get inconvenient and there's all sorts of issues you got involved in. Why would he want to do that? I mean, he's inviting trouble in on his life. And what if word gets out that he's generous? Well, then all of Lazarus' friends are going to be showing up on the gate. You know, and now his life's going to be one long problem. He doesn't want to do this. So he has no intention of actually acting on Isaiah 58. But of course, he doesn't want to say that. You know what? He believes this is true. Uh, And if you believe it's true, you can't just admit that you have no intention of acting on it. And so we get clever. He gets clever. Even though he knows very well what this teaching implies, he pretends that he doesn't know it. And his brothers do the same. Now, how do we pretend that we don't know something that we actually know? It's really easy. I think we do this to some degree all the time. There's a lot of ways of doing it. Uh, one of the ways is just to convince yourself that it's not all that clear. We need, to, we need more information. We need to study this further. We've got to investigate this. I can imagine this man walking home from the synagogue or riding in his carriage, however he got there, and 
He's saying to himself, hmm, loose the chains. Uh, what does that mean, chains? Are they literal? Are they metaphorical? I don't see any chains around, you know. I, I have to do more research on that. I have to explore that a little bit. And untie the cords. And what's this yoke business? You know, we have to really kind of look at the historical circumstances here. And, and, and what really does that mean? And who really are the oppressed? You know, I wish they would wear name tags or something because it's really hard. There's a lot of ambiguity that surrounds us. And what really constitutes the hunger? Feed the hungry? Well, I get hungry before lunch every day. I guess I'm included in that category. And what does it really mean to share? These are very complex, deep issues. Is sharing 1%, 5%, 10%, 50%, 90%? I mean, you know, I often look into that a little bit longer and, 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 and ponder this. And, and who really are the naked? I've never seen a totally naked person out in the streets. Even Lazarus has got a little cloth covering up the important thing, you know. And, and so, uh, you know, who really are the, who are the naked? For crying out loud, I get naked before I take a, a bath. And so, you know, I don't really know how to apply this verse here. And where does poverty end and riches begin? Oh, the ambiguity is tremendous. I mean, maybe I'm rich compared to Lazarus, but I'm poor compared to Herod and Julius Caesar. And besides, I got a lot of bills. People think I'm living on easy street, but I'm strapped for my visa, my visa card is maxed out. It's not easy paying for all these servants and this fine linen that I'm wearing and this purple clothing and these, these nice dinners. And, and I'm kind of over my head. People don't realize this, but I got a lot of financial stress myself. When you really think about it, I'm quite middle class as you look at things. And really, aren't we all victims of injustice and oppression? Aren't we all, you know, really spiritually hungry? In fact, that's probably what the verse means. It's talking about spiritual oppression and spiritual yoke and spiritual hunger and spiritual nakedness. So I'll say a prayer for them once in a while. And if God puts a big burden on me to share, well, then maybe I'll, I'll do that. But God, I'm going to have to wait for that big burden. Because see, there's just so much unclarity here, so much ambiguity. We need more research, more Bible studies, more investigation. In the meantime, I'm going to enjoy the nice blessings that I have from God. So he convinces himself that he really doesn't know what he does know. He convinces himself that he doesn't really know what God wants. And as he walks home from the synagogue or rides in his carriage and passes Lazarus, he's pondering these deep questions, even perhaps asking God for greater clarity. I imagine that was hard at first. I, you know, I, I, I don't know, but, but if there was any openness in this man's heart at any point in his life, when he first started doing this, that had to be a little bit difficult as he passes the Lazarus who's there. If there's any openness, God would have been saying, hey, dude, pay attention. And, you know, remember what you know from the Moses and the prophets. Pay attention. And there'll be conviction there. But whatever you do in life, you get good at doing. And so the more he ignores that and pretends like he doesn't know what he in fact does know, the better he gets at that. And there comes a point where he doesn't feel any conviction at all, even though maybe he's praying for conviction. And there comes a point where he doesn't notice Lazarus at all, even when he's asking God for greater clarity. The principle is this. When you refuse to act on what you know, you gradually deaden your capacity to act on what you know. You convince yourself that if only you had more knowledge, or if only God would give you a sign, or if only God would give you this great conviction, well, then you'd act. But all the while, you may be getting to the point where, in fact, you won't act, even if Jesus Christ himself appeared to you and told you to do it. The thing is, we all have a frightening capacity to be like these brothers. We have a frightening capacity to deceive ourselves. We have a frightening capacity to pretend that we don't know what we in fact do know because what we know, we don't like the implications it has for our life. And when we refuse to act in the light that we're given, we now are heading down a trajectory where we're, where we're starting to become blind. Now this has a multitude of applications. The main application, as it comes from this text, has to do with our responsibility towards the poor. Like the brothers, 
We have Moses and the prophets and their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of verses telling us over and over again that if you have more than you need, think about the people who have less than they need, and there's a responsibility that goes with that. But on top of that, we actually do have a guy who rose from the dead, Jesus, and we have the entire New Testament reiterating the same thing over and over and over again. So we know this. We know this. The dangers of greed and the responsibility to live with outrageous generosity towards the poor. We know this. We don't have to pray about this one. We don't have to ponder this one. We don't have to look for a sign. We don't even have to wait for some great conviction about this. That may come, it may not, but God's already told us this. And if we will act on it, it will inconvenience our life. How could it be otherwise? But we'll also discover a dimension of joy and peace that we otherwise could never know. But at the same time, it's very possible for us to pretend like we don't know this, to forget about it, or to make it obscure. And if we're not careful, we could end up being Christians who live in America in far more luxury than the rich man in this parable ever dreamed of having. All the while, we're surrounded by billions of Lazaruses who are in exactly the same pathetic position as Lazarus was. The warning would be more on us than it was even for this rich guy because the disparity, whatever the disparity was between the two back in the first century, it's far, far greater now. And we're at the top end of the scale. If we're not careful, we could end up being so calloused that we could be spending 97% of our income on ourselves despite the fact that we live far above the world average. We could become so callous that we actually feel sacrificial for giving up that 3% because it's better than what other people are doing. If we're not careful, we could end up waiting on God to give us a sign or to put some great burden on our heart before we do what he's already commanded us a thousand times to do. Now, I want to be clear here. The Bible is very clear that there is no sin in being wealthy and there's no guilt in enjoying that wealth. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that those who are wealthy, and that includes a good percentage of the people who are hearing this message right now. Paul says, tell those who are wealthy uh, to be humble and to thank God for, uh, who gives us all these things for our enjoyment. There's no guilt in enjoying that. Okay, so get rid of that idea. But in the next breath, Paul says, and the entire Bible teaches, tell the rich to be generous and sharing with those who are in need, those who are poor. Over and over and over again, we hear this. That's the balance. Yes, God, thank you for this, but there's a responsibility that comes with this. And when we respond, uh, we're called to respond to the light that God gives us. And if we don't, well, our hearts begin to be callous. And if we're not careful, we can grow blind. No one is in a position to ever judge another person in terms of whether they are giving enough whether they're responding to the light. I don't care how big their house is or what kind of car they drive. Now, if they invite you in on their life and you invite them in on your life, you have a covenant relationship and we all need that. Well, now there's a place for holding one another accountable. And, and, to, and, and in this culture that is always moving us in a different direction, to submit our finances to one another and, and to say, I'm thinking about spending this, what do you think? And, and to open that up. We, we really do need people in on our life to help us steward our resources in kingdom ways. But if, if, if a person hasn't invited you in on that, then you don't have to have and shouldn't have another thought about it. That's none of your business. But all of us have to take our business and bring it before God and submit it to others. And it starts with, I think, praying a prayer that David prayed when he says, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. 
realizing, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17.3, that our hearts are desperately wicked. We have a tremendous capacity to deceive ourselves. Knowing that, it's so important that we go before God and we say, God, open up my heart. I want to come before you and test me and try me, examine me, and show me what is real. And then together with others in a kingdom community, and again, we all need kingdom community. We need to ask, we need to live in the question, are we acting on the truth that we know? Are we waiting for God to convince us to do something he's already told us a thousand times to do? Am I and my kingdom community noticing the Lazaruses that are around me? We need to live in that question before God. Now let me say this. To, to have an awareness of the Lazaruses around you does not mean that you're supposed to give to every panhandler approaches you. Because all the studies show that a lot of the folks who come up to you asking for money on the street corner aren't at all in the position of Lazarus in the first century. Uh, in fact, a lot of them are using their money to support things that are not healthy for them, uh, various addictions or whatever. Uh, I encourage you, that, you know, if you're going to just kind of give to people who come up to you on the street, and there's kind of a guilt thing, you hear misses like that, you think, oh, maybe I should. But if, you, if, if you're going to give, I, I, I would give food certificates or, or gift certificates to restaurants or, you know, McDonald's or something so they can't spend the money on drugs or something else like that because that's not good stewardship and we're called to be good stewards of God's resources. And besides, we shouldn't leave an important issue like how we steward God's resources up to, you know, momentary decisions of someone who approaches us on the street. That may make you feel less guilty, but that's not the wise way to do it. You need to sit down with family and kingdom friends and say, what is God calling us to do? That he's calling us to be outrageously generous, you don't need to pray about. That's a given. The particular way that you, you live that out, that's something for you to pray with, with your friends and, and family. But the principle that if we don't act on what we know, we gradually get better at, uh, we lose our capacity at, on acting on what we know, it applies not only to our responsibility to the poor, it applies actually to every area of our life every area of our life. We in the West have a historically unprecedented and completely unfounded confidence on the value of gaining information. We think that if we learn more stuff, it will change our life. And I am a big advocate for learning, especially if you're called to be a teacher. I'm a big big advocate for that. But on the other hand, we can't kid ourselves into thinking that the reason our life doesn't line up perhaps with God's will is because we lack information. Uh, this is why we tend to, we, we have this confidence in, in, in acquiring information. And so we often get in so many Bible studies, personal Bible studies and group Bible studies and, and things of that sort, as though learning in and of itself makes us more Christ-like. And I'm all for learning and I'm all for Bible studies, but you've got to know that that rarely will itself make you Christ-like. Because the reality is this. The central challenge of the kingdom is not acquiring more knowledge. You really don't need a whole lot of knowledge. The central challenge of the kingdom is to act on the knowledge you already have. And you don't need a whole lot of knowledge. In fact, amen. In fact, most truths of the kingdom, you can't really know them until you start acting on them. You can learn all the historical and factual information you want about love. Uh, but you're never going to know what love really is until you start, start putting it into practice and engage in the discipline of loving your enemies. 
Uh, you can learn all the historical and factual, factual information you want about hospitality, and that's good. But you're never going to really know what hospitality is until you start you know, letting yourself be pinched and, and inconvenienced by practicing hospitality. Uh, you can study all you want to know about sacrifice, but, but you're never going to really know what sacrifice is until you start doing it. You can learn all you want about the, the Greek word for forgiveness and the historical background for it, and that's wonderful and fine and good, hallelujah. But you're not going to know what forgiveness is until you start actually doing it. And so it is with self-control and encouragement and all the values of the kingdom. Figuring out what they mean isn't the tough part. Doing them is the tough part. And you don't really know what they mean until we start doing them. Kingdom truth is not primarily something that's supposed to be locked between our ears. It's not a matter of head knowledge. Kingdom truth is something that is to be lived. And that's the challenging part. First John says, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. You can, you can confess him, Jesus Christ is Lord. You can you know, have a lot of knowledge in your head. But the, the issue is, how is the walk? And if you're yet walking in darkness, if your life is indistinguishable from people who are in darkness, well, then there's a lie going on. There's a hypocrisy going on. There's a separation. There's a gulf. Uh, the elevator's not going from the head to the heart to the life. Uh, something is wrong here. Doing the truth, doing the truth, living the truth, and I'm preaching to myself here. But see, it requires sacrifice. It will inconvenience our life which is maybe why we'd much rather just study about it and call that the kingdom. And so we become people who acquire a whole lot of information, but it never really manifests much in our life. It's vital that we act on the truth that we know because the more we resist acting on what we know, the more difficult we make it for ourselves to ever act on what we know. And if we're not careful, we could end up being believers who intellectually know a great deal but who have little or no inclination or capacity to ever act on it. If we're not careful, we could be, end up being folks who uh, have you know, a whole lot of beliefs and uh, a whole lot of confession and profession and a whole lot of studies, but in fact our lives are almost indistinguishable from the folks who don't have all that knowledge. It's crucial, it's vital that we act on the information that we have. I sometimes worry that we can become like folks who, the picture I get is, is, is really uh, constipation. Like if, if, you, if you just eat and eat and eat and eat and there's no output, you're in trouble. <laughs> and I'm sorry for the indecorous analogy, but I think you'll remember it. I, you know, that, that's just how it's supposed to work. It's good to get information. Weekly sermons, Bible studies, wonderful, get that. But it's got to produce something. <laughs> it's got to produce something. Otherwise, we just get very, very bloated. If we're not careful, we end up having full of knowledge and facts, but we're losing, it actually does more harm than good because we just get better at better and better at not acting on it, and we insulate ourselves from ever acting on it. And what's scary is that study after study, George Barna and others have shown that a good percentage of American Christians are exactly in that position. So where do we start to repent and to change. It starts with the David prayer that I mentioned earlier. Going before God, recognizing how easy it is for us to kid ourselves and to say, test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. 
help me to be real with myself. Knowing how inclined I can be to uh, tell myself lies and to convince myself of stuff that's not true. Go before God and with, with, with kingdom friends and, and, and open up your life and say, God, reveal to me what is true. And then with friends, kingdom friends, people who are going to help you live out the kingdom, ask, ask questions like this. Are we acting on the truths that we know? Are we practicing the kingdom? Or are we just perpetually learning about the kingdom and calling that the kingdom? Are we waiting for God to tell us to do something he's already told us to do? This happens all the time. Well, when God convicts me about that, well, then I'll, then I'll act. He doesn't need to convict you if he's already told you this. And the fact that you're not convicted is just evidence of the stream you're going down. And the longer you wait, the, harder, the more unlikely it will be that you'll ever get convicted. Don't wait for this overwhelming conviction to do what God tells you to do. Just do it. And the feelings and the convictions maybe will start to come later on. With friends, with family, ask that question. You know, the, the, what we do here on, on the weekends, this is not church. We, it's kind of cultural to call it church. But this is a seminar. We worship and we have a seminar. And so it's a seminar on kingdom living. And so we're always looking at ways to, you know, help the educational process here. And so um, after the service, we'll have at the back doors and at the hub... Um, these, these assignment sheets. We're giving out assignments. I wish I could give grades, but you know, it's kind of hard. But uh, they're just suggestions for discussion and thought and practice uh, and kind of like a, a what to do next sort of a thing because we're very aware and very worried about having messages that you know, seem really good in the moment, but on Monday it just doesn't translate anywhere, which means the message then is not only worthless, is actually doing more harm than good because you just help people get better at not acting at what they know. And so we really want to help folks to translate the message into life. And so there's just these kind of assignment sheets. Uh, there's not legalism or anything like that, uh, though I would like to give grades, but they won't let me. Uh, but for you to, to ponder this and talk about it with family and friends, so I encourage you to pick that up. Uh, remember that uh, there's coffee out there for sale. That money for that goes uh, to support the missions trip. Uh, and we encourage people to uh, have a lot of um, a fellowship with one another after service. We want you to do that. And remember the lunches that are going to be held throughout the Twin Cities. And, and so look, stop at the hub to find out where those are happening. But I also want to encourage you to take the conversations to the back of the auditorium uh, so that the people who are up here praying uh, won't be distracted. And having said that, I'd like to ask the prayer team to come forward. And if you're here this morning and you have not surrendered your life to Jesus Christ and you're feeling a pull of the light, I want to implore you not to resist that. Don't get good at resisting that. Buckle under now. Come forward and surrender your life to him. Or if you have any, need, any other need that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward and pray with these folks. And let me close with this prayer. Father, search us, try us, examine us. Help us to be honest with ourselves, with you, and with some other people in our life. And Lord God, help us to be people who walk in the light. Don't just profess the light and believe the light, but who walk in this light. Help us, Lord God, to connect, to make the connection between what we know and what our life reflects, Lord God. Holy Spirit, will you please bug us to remember this and change our hearts and change our lives, to be willing to be inconvenienced, that we'll look more like Jesus Christ day after day. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's kingdom people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and live the kingdom.